So I like the little countdown. <laughs> okay, so we're live. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Ernesto Mercado. I am an evaluation associate at CCNY Inc. Um, this is the Data Doesn't Equal Outcomes podcast. Uh, so behavioral health and human services organizations have to demonstrate outcomes. Uh, they have to run programs that make people better and prove it. And so the Met scramble for data is well underway. But data is just technically numbers. So um, and outcomes are just results. And connecting the two is the work that we try to do. If it has to do with driving better results for clients using a data-driven approach, we'll be covering it here on data doesn't equal outcomes. I am here today joined by uh, my two very amazing guests. Um, First, I want to introduce Equipments I do, um, Chief People and Diversity Officer at Evergreen Health and Principal Consultant for the Clementine Gold Group. Um, and we are also joined by Natalia Rice, Chief Equity Officer with the New View Alliance. So gonna pass it on to you both if you want to say hi to the to the people. Hello, yeah. people. Thank Hello. you for having us. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Um, unfortunately, Tristan uh, was not able to join us today, but I know that um, he is very excited that this is going to be uh, that this is going to be occurring and being uploaded to our site. So um, we're going to do a great job um, in his honor. Uh, so we are having a very exciting podcast here today because we are focusing on topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is uh, a conversation that I know we're all very excited to have, and I am especially, especially passionate about. Um, so the first thing that I want to start with um, is what are the metrics for diversity, equity, and inclusion? What should people be measuring and looking at in uh, in the work that we do. And I will keep it open for whoever wants to start. Who you wanna take it away? You want me to start? Okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. so um, honestly, I really think it depends on the industry that you're coming from for more nuance in terms of what you might be measuring. Uh, but I do think that organizations who are doing this work can, can all look at a few different metrics uh, to measure over time for sure. Um, and those we call the, the equity analysis framework. And that's what we do here at Evergreen Health. We look at about five different metrics um, and it includes human capital. So this is an internal facing component of what you might measure. I think there's also external facing um, data points and metrics that you might also consider as well. Um, internally, we're looking at things like representation and headcount. What does that represent, representation look like? Um, in, in the varying ranks of our organization, right? In leadership, in management, in frontline staff, um, and direct contributors from that from that standpoint. So representation and headcount, we also know that a best practice is to look at the city that you might um, work in and measure that your, your staff compared to the city demographics, right? And so internally, we're looking at representation and headcount. We're also looking at things like development and job advancement, right? So how long have you been at the organization? What has your development specifically been? Um, how long has it taken you to grow in, in our organization? And the idea is to get to a point where we can kind of be more predictive and say, hey, your success rate looks like this when you come into our organization. Uh, we're also looking at things like retention and turnover, um, you know, who's leaving. We're looking at it from a voluntary aspect and involuntary aspect as well. 
um, you know, what does turnover look like in different departments or centers that exist within our organization? Um, we look at something like job satisfaction and employee engagement, um, you know, and measuring that based off of like employee engagement survey and studies. And then uh, we're looking at pay and compensation as well and a pay equity component to that. And so for each one of these different data metrics, we're looking to disaggregate that information as much as possible, looking at things like age, um, gender, race, ethnicity. Uh, we're, we're trying to do some sexual orientation. I know that's something that's voluntary. So we're looking at ways to actually do that to get more data on what that looks like. Um, but the reality is every single one of these data metrics, we'll be able to disaggregate and look at who is being successful in the organization um, and, and be very specific in who that, that might be. So that's the internal aspect. I think Externally, you know, looking at things that relate to the business that you're doing, right? So in healthcare, we're looking at our patient metrics and data, and we're trying to measure some of that as it relates to this, you know, the same metrics that I mentioned. So representation and headcount, what does our patient data look like and, and representation? Because we would love to mirror our staff to our patient demographic as well. Um, it helps us to determine things like how many bilingual um, employees might we need depending on the folks that are coming through our doors. And so there's that type of external engagement. I also think, um, you know, community engagement and what you're doing externally is something that you can measure as well. But it is definitely nuanced depending on what industry you're coming from. So that was a long answer. I'm going to pass it to Natalia to, to add anything. An incredibly insightful one, though. Yeah. So I appreciate it. I think a lot of the time we only think about workforce representation. And while that is incredibly important, it can't just end there. And mm -hmm. so even at that level, disaggregating it, considering intersectionality, going beyond race, race plus gender, plus whatever different identities we can capture and that our employees are comfortable expressing, and then comparing that to the service population, as Akua mentioned, is our workforce meaningfully representative of the population served? And I don't just mean that in the tokenism point where we say, okay, we have one Puerto Rican employee and therefore we need to, you know, going beyond that, to be meaningful about this and consider what does your strategic planning process look like for DEI? Because again, as Akua said, this is subjective. Mm -hmm. While there are certain metrics that can be streamlined and that are incredibly beneficial to have across any organization, if you have something specific on your plan, such as wanting to expand your recruitment sources to reach BIPOC communities, for example, what do your recruitment source success rates look like? Where are you currently tapping into who is being extended an offer, who is accepting those offers. So again, going beyond that basic level of representation and digging into the nuances and the individual processes that are leading into that bigger goal that we have here. I think that um, I love that we're talking about, you know, going deeper, not just in a very superficial, like, who do we have? Who do we need to have, quote unquote? Um, and I'll take into consideration uh, intersectionality, right? Because that is something that can be so easily left behind by by the people that are looking at this in a very like two dimensional way. Um, and I think that you know, like with these metrics and trying to define them, it's important to ask ourselves like, why are we, you know, like why does it matter, quote unquote? Um, I, I even asking that question in itself sounds a little. Um, I don't know, uh, sounds wrong to ask, but I think it's important, an important conversation to have, um, you know, from, from a different, from different perspectives. So, um, 
how do we how do we avoid being too superficial with when we're trying to to use these metrics? You know, how can we achieve our goal? Um, how do we answer the why question in a way that is meaningful, not just for us as an agency, but for our clients or patients or, you know, customers? Um, I, I would just say that we, the the reality is, you know, we're in, and I'm just talking from a healthcare industry, but because we're in a healthcare industry, um, our patient satisfaction, that's something that we look at. Um, and we, we know that if, the employee side is being taken care of, right? Like our employees feel like they belong. Uh, they, they feel like they're included. They feel like there's uh, safety from a psychological standpoint um, that when they have job satisfaction, we, our goal is to mirror that with our patient satisfaction as well. So if you have happy employees, you'll have happy patients. And ultimately when you talk about like, um, you know, avoiding some of the superficial, we wanna see that as patient outcomes. So how are our patients doing? Are, is their health any better, right? Do they have more access? Are we decreasing barriers? And so I think that's why it's important, right? To kind of make some of those connections over time, but that goes beyond the superficial in terms of just counting numbers, right? Like what what is it that we're trying to ultimately do in the industry that we're representing? So I would say that for us, it's definitely going back to those health outcomes, patient satisfaction, and making the connection between our employee engagement as well. And I think that a piece there is also transparency. So being able to articulate the what and why of data collection of metrics tracking. We don't want to be collecting data about potentially very sensitive topics and not being able to say why we're doing that or what we're planning to do with it. A big initiative that I took on when I first started in my role was we need to do better at understanding who our clients are. We need to understand, again, those intersectional identities and going beyond potentially arbitrary binaries of putting them into a box. But why are we doing that? Do we know how to say that when we're asking these questions? And are we being transparent in that data analysis? Or is it just staying in a corner for us to say, oh, well, we did it. But that's where you stay at that performative level, that superficial level, being able to make data accessible, being able to continuously articulate where we are and where we want to go, I think is incredibly important to go beyond that superficiality of saying, oh, well, we're just doing this in terms of headcount to report it out to our governing bodies. No, we wanna do this for our internal culture as well. And here's why, and here's what we'll be doing with it. And here's the role that you play. So something that um, I want to to talk about based on, on those answers is, um, you know, like we, we need to learn about our, our population, right? Whether it's the population that we're serving or the population that we are, um, which takes into consideration the dominant culture around us, right? And, you know, dominant culture in our local area, in our um, county, state, you know, country, the world, um, as much of, of it as we can possibly uh, understand. Um, how, like for people that are out there that are trying to decide, um, okay, so like our goals for DEI metrics and, and evaluation should be X, Y, C. Um, should they aim to have like a specific quota or should they like, should they aim to be like, okay, we noticed that for example, we serve um, the transgender population, which has uh, a very high rates of, of suicide attempts and suicide. Um, how like should we 
aim to like lower the the rate of that for our population like what are your thoughts on on the process of analyzing the dominant culture and how to intake that in our DEI metrics so um you know when i think about dominant culture i think about I think about it from an organizational standpoint, right? So there's a lot of, when we talk about values and we talk about um, how dominant culture really influences how we do the work that we do, um, taking it into consideration from that standpoint, I think those might be two separate things to consider, right? In terms of some of the metrics as it relates to specific patient populations, but um, what dominant norms are we following as an organization and is it serving everyone, right? Um, and so these are the questions that we try to d dig a little bit deeper as it relates to what what norms we're following. Right. So um, when you think about like perfectionism versus um, just creating the sense of trying. Right. Or, or failure as being a part of your normal organizational culture. When you think about the ways that we communicate written communication versus oral com communication as it relates to dominant norms, um, we have to kind of dig a little bit deeper. And I think organizations really need to take a step back to say, what norms do we follow? Are they serving everyone? Is everyone represented at the table in the same way? Are we creating this culture of inclusion that provides a space for people to show up in their most authentic selves? And I think from an organizational standpoint, dominant culture is something that we challenge. Um, you, you know, Even thinking about the growth that organizations go through, how are we fostering that growth? What does our change management strategies look like? Are people supported through that change in a way that is most effective for them? Are we, when we talk about equity and giving people the resources and tools they need to succeed, are we making sure that we're really digging down deeper and looking at it from a standpoint of all the different people that we serve internally and in, in, in their own success? So from a dominant culture standpoint, I definitely, I link that more to organizational culture and ensuring that it's done in a way um, that the most people in your organization can really thrive and succeed and be valued through the ways that they show up authentically. And I think that something else the dominant culture I've seen do that I try to push back on is making DEI palatable, where diversity is this numbers game. And as long as we achieve these metrics, then we can say that we did it. And that's it. That's the end of it. But this is a marathon, not a sprint. This is not something that you're going to get that immediate gratification of, oh, we have a culture shift, everything is okay, because these are these issues are hundreds of years in the making. And so something a lot of the times that comes out of that is tokenism, where you say, okay, well, we're going to hire X next number of staff in order to say that we have this to, in order to have it on paper, and that's harmful. That is something that can completely derail the progress that you have made or when we talk about metrics, it's not only recruitment, it's retention as well. And so you can say that we have made these efforts to bring staff in, but what are we doing in our internal culture to keep them? Because I'm not going to stay where I do not feel I am supported, empowered, that I belong and can be my authentic self. And so again, going beyond that numbers game and really thinking what else do we have to continue doing to foster that internal psychological safety, for example? What do we need to do to go beyond tokenism, beyond a quota and say, we want meaningful representation and this is why? Can we articulate again, that why for diversity, that why for equity, that why for inclusion and transcend that performative understanding of DEI that I really think is dangerous that we need to push back on. 
So something that um, I definitely noticed is that when you mentioned um, DEI being more palatable, we we were all like, yes, because <laughs> um, it's something that that is is struggle with con constantly, you know, for people uh, in the position that it, that are trying to to further DEI um, in their agency. Uh, and, you know, as a quick anecdote, I, we were actually talking about something like this earlier in one of our meetings um, where one of my coworkers was expressing that in um, a different work that she's doing outside of the agency um, in one of her hobbies. Uh, one of the, the people that she was working with, they were committed to bringing uh, more, more diversity in the work that they do. And when faced with some pressure, the first thing that they eliminated was the DEI component they were trying to showcase. Um, you know, they were like, I, I don't, I don't want to give too much information, but it was essentially like, Hey, we're going to try to be more inclusive. So we're going to bring in this, this thing that was created by a woman. Um, and when they were like, Oh, we need to eliminate something because of time or whatever constraint they had. Um, they were like, Oh, we're going to eliminate that one first. So how how let's i want to talk about a little bit about that like how do we make dei palatable marketable like how do we show like the the convincing argument so that it's not a footnote in in the corporate world that we live in so i i think i want to just touch on what you mentioned too and, and natalia mentioned it being more palatable um, with these specific numbers. And I think that's also a dominant culture trait, right? Like needing to have this success oriented vision as it relates to certain things. Like we know that this is an ongoing effort um, and it's not something that you can just say, okay, I checked the box. Now I'm done. This is what you're, you're embedding in culture. It's embedding how you do business. And so um, when you think about it from that lens in the business case, because I think a couple people will say, oh, okay, this is one specific initiative and it lives in this one place in your organization. The reality is you're trying to embed it in all areas of your organization as a best practice in how you do business. And so when you're explaining the reason why, the, the, the reason behind, um, you know, doing these initiatives, it's really attaching it to the business case of why it's important. So from an organizational culture standpoint, you know, I oversee people. And so the, the way that we practice our human resources is look through the lens of equity now. Um, you know, how we manage our people is look through that specific lens. Um, when we talk about it, we think about these three different areas that touch on the business case. So your external factors, like your external community that you're serving. So, you know, from a patient standpoint, it's all the people who are coming into our services. Um, the workforce itself, which is all the people that make up the workplace and then the workplace, essentially. So how you're onboarding people, how you're recognizing and rewarding people, um, you know, your leadership development and mentorship programs and career development, every single aspect of those has to be looked at through the specific lens in order for you to have a successful culture that people want to stay in, right? And so from my case, and what I would say is you, you're not looking at it as a separate, its own thing over here in the left-hand side. It's how you're embedding it across the whole entire agency and organization. Um, and it's the way that you're doing business as a culture. So I would I would say that, you know, organizations have to definitely get to the point where you, you expect to be challenged. It's uncomfortable work because you're lifting up rocks, you're turning things over and saying, mm, I don't know if this is the best way to do this anymore. You know, might we consider other voices to be included in this that generally have not been or historically haven't been? 
um, and really pushing the envelope to say there's a better way to do this and it's a more inclusive way to do this. So um, those are those are my two cents on on how you might consider it. But I think a dominant cultural norm is to check off boxes and and feel resolute that okay I did something now I'm not seen as somebody who's against this work where it's like no we're gonna always be challenged challenging, you know, status quo. We're always going to be pushing that to see if there's a better way to do that. And that comes up with more innovation in general, right? Like creating these different people that are coming to the table, um, you know, and creating these opportunities for you to have that friction because that friction will breed better innovation in my, in my opinion. And as Akua said, so I feel like I'm just repeating all of your points. So hopefully I'm going past that, but weaving it into the culture and making it something that is not somehow mutually exclusive where DEI exists over here and our mission is over here. And why are those things not interchangeable? Like when you look at your strategic plan, it shouldn't just be the DEI strategic plan. Your overall organizational goal should be weaving in those DEI strategic goals and objectives something that we did recently was even talking about our strategic deliverables across all of our programs. So spanning from finance to what I do to HR functions, weaving in principles of DEI specifically into those program specific deliverables. And so that again, it's not just what's DEI doing over there. We have one equity officer that is in charge of it all and we have no role in this, but rather, no, this is something that we all have a stake in. This is something that we all need to take part in in order to move this forward because this is the work that we do. And if you're not able to articulate why that is mission critical and rather view it as something that, oh, well, we're doing this because we felt like we had to, that's an issue. That's performative action. And you can see right through that. It is very easy to tell when somebody is about it when it comes to this work versus when we're doing it for the sake of being able to say we did. Thank you for, for saying that, both of you, because something that um, I'm glad that wasn't said was that in order to make it, you know, like your focus was included in the culture, right? It wasn't like, okay, we're going to make it more palatable by telling like how much your money can increase or like your financial uh, uh, gains for being more inclusive, which is is uh, a fact, you know, like, like DEI brings... Um, a lot of uh, financial benefits to to agencies, pretty much regardless of the field. Um, but that's not what we're here to do, right? Like it's it shouldn't be for the money. It shouldn't be for the productivity. Um, so I'm glad that the the focus instead of you know selling the business case to business owners, for example, in a very like black and white fashion, is not the goal. The goal is to um, integrate DEI throughout the the entire experience of work. Um, I just add to that too, because we're in a, a point in time where we're talking about like the war on talent, right? And the great resignation and the great reshifting in terms of priorities. And I think, you know, it also lends itself into that as well, right? Like if you aren't really focused on how to create the best possible environment, for your employees, they will leave. There's so many different opportunities currently that are that are out there. It's an employee-driven market right now. People are saying what they want to do after a pandemic of two years. I mean, we're still in the midst of it, but you know, they want more balance, work-life balance, and what that looks like after going through something like uh, the pandemic for the last two years. So, 
employers have to get on board with this stuff because it really does shift the conversation to creating that environment where people want to be um, because we're all competing right now for employees and, and what that looks like. So I'll just add that on, on top of that is that, you know, in this, in this specific time of reference and time frame, it's something that you really don't have a choice to do, I would say, like you really need to embrace it and, um, you know, embed it in the culture to make sure people want to stay. And consider lived experience, because a lot of the time when you look, that's the importance of disaggregating by leadership level, by workforce level, because yes, in the big scheme, you might have this diversity that we're all seeking, but what does your board of directors look like? What are your senior leadership teams look like? Do they have the lived experience to be able to empathize with what our broader workforce is going through right now? Or do they have these unearned advantages that are kind of shielding them from current social events, the current reality that a lot of people are navigating? And if that empathy isn't there in spaces of decision-making, policy-making, we're doing our broader workforce a disservice. And I think that it's easy to say, oh, DEI is just this buzzword. This is something that's going to go away. But for many people, this is our life. And to be able to finally have this conversation that in dominant culture has never been prioritized, that is so meaningful. That can be game changing. But to continue on with the mentality that, oh, no, we don't need to talk about this anymore. We've done enough. That is coming from a profound place of privilege. And so, again, trying to level that playing field. The quote that I always gravitate to is nothing about us without us. So who is being impacted by your decisions? Who is represented in this data? And is it equitable in how we are perceiving the current culture? Because we are all going to have different perspectives just based on that intersectionality. Hopefully if some of that made sense, but again, just considering who your people are when it comes to these issues. I think that makes sense. And I think, you know, you, you started just even touching on that principle, like who is impacted by what's occurring in your organization, even from a policy and procedure standpoint, you know, how, how your culture exists currently. And it goes back to some of the racial equity work that's being done even in our, in our region, right? The racial equity impact analysis tool gives you five different questions to, to ask when you're making decisions, right? So are those people who are most impacted by whatever you're about to do at the table when you're making these decisions. And that's a best practice. Lean into the people that are in your organization and, and have them be a part of it. And they're bought into the process that you're going on um, or that you're putting together. So I think that's a really great point that Natalia brings up. You know, oftentimes organizations just make decisions. And, and granted, we have to make decisions um, as organizations, but the ones that we can really lean on our employees to be a part of there's going to be increased buy-in and feeling like your opinion and your, you know, what you bring to the table really matters to increase that inclusion. So how can we, um, how can we help people in, in decision-making uh, um, positions, um, people with power that are hiring people that are training people, you know, that have the ability to make spaces more inclusive that look more like who we're serving you know who are you know like the 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 us in you know trying to to make something with us not without us right um how can they try to fill in these seats 
without it being tokenism so that it's you know actively helpful actively um for the for the for the serving of these populations and not for the serving of optics of the company a big piece there i think is again that internal culture shift and so it's not just our external facing presence it's who are we inside what does our community look like how do we interact with each other at a basic human level, the emotional intelligence piece. And there is more to this, but I think that that's something that often goes overlooked. We don't consider what we are trying to bring people into. And if historically, let's say you've been around for a hundred years, 150 years and basic things about accommodations, like conversations there have never been had, you're not bringing new employees or employees that you're hoping to start representing more in our population. You're not bringing them into a hospitable environment where they are empowered to succeed and thrive and be their full authentic selves. And so again, there are internal strategies to avoid tokenism, but a big piece that I talk to about our board is what do our internal strategies look like? What are we doing to foster that inclusive culture, to learn more, to embrace cultural humility, to know that you can't just read a book or read an article and suddenly understand what somebody's lived experience is. How do we foster an environment that people want to come to and stay in without feeling like they're only here to check a box to be that quote unquote diversity statistic? Yeah, and I think, you know, the that inward look really, you have to, I think, challenge yourself to to why you're getting to this point as well. Like, are you in it for the right reasons? Are are your intentions to really create this environment, but also put resources behind its success as well, right? Um, cause a lot of folks will say, okay, we're going to put this person of color into a role like this. Um, they can solve everything now moving forward. And we know that that's not the case because you do need resources to really challenge, um, the status quo and, and to raise different issues that are happening within your organization. So are you giving that person resources? Are you giving that person the leeway to challenge, um, you know, to bring things up because that's the other part. And I've, I've heard it from different colleagues in the space where it's like, yeah, they wanted, this type of diversity officer and this person in this role. But once I bring different things up, they're like, oh yeah, we'll get to that. Right. Or kind of brush it to the side. And so I think you have to really check your own intent as an organization to say, okay, are we doing this for the right reasons? Are we creating a space that that person can be successful because the work ahead is already going to be challenging enough. Right. Um, and are we putting the right supports in place through resources, monetary resources, but then also staffing, um, resources and and people actually being tied to, the, they're evaluated based on how they're doing in this as well. So I think you have to have all those different supports to really be successful. Um, and a lot of folks in the space don't always get that. And that's why the success of their programs could be in question because the right support isn't backing what you're actually saying that you want to do. So I would just say, you know, check yourself, check yourself to see if that's something that you're really uh, wanting to promote and really able to put the resources behind. Um, and if you're not able to do that, then you can start somewhere else, right? I think um, sometimes it's more frustrating when you say, okay, we have this person and they're they're going to be in this role, but they have no support or resources behind them. And people are just like, okay, so what, what's the point in doing this? So um, there's always somewhere to start. I think, you know, getting to the point where you have some, you need to have somebody that owns this for sure but everybody needs to own it as well. So um, just making sure that you're ready for the work to come is, is something that I would highlight. 
And a common misunderstanding about tokenism is that it's when you're the only one. And that is not the case necessarily. It's when you are becoming defined by that social identity that you're bringing to the table. So for example, all of the work that you're prescribed has to do with race because you are now the only non-white employee on the team. That is tokenism. When you become relegated to this field and seen as only qualified to do that work, when you might have this, you do have this incredibly diverse skill set and perspective that would lend so much value to other facets of what the organization is doing. But again, as Akua said, you're relegated. No, no, you do the DEI stuff. You do the things that have to do with our BIPOC employees, culture, that's about it. You don't get to touch the other things or just that assumption that that's all you're here to do. Mm -hmm. That is tokenism. And that is what we need to push past and empower us all to be able to come to work and bring our full skill set, not just our social identity, because that can go really wrong and become very harmful very quickly. Yeah, and you know something that I that I want to talk about is also um, the effect that it can have on the person when you are viewed, you know, whether implicitly or explicitly as like the person who is here because of your identity it makes you question absolutely everything about yourself like especially in a professional manner like am i good enough to be here like did they actually want to hire me because of who i like what i can do or is it just because of who i am um and what my identities are um what, what my demographics are you know um and i wish that i had um uh, of uh, like uh, an antidote to this feeling of inadequacy that can come with feeling as the token minority in a room, you know, that so that we don't question our skills, our knowledge, but it's, it's such a pervasive feeling, right? Because it can happen anywhere. It's not just at work, it can be anywhere. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, like there's plenty of experiences that people have in this setting, but I know that for me, the biggest thing was in graduate school. Um, all throughout, I was questioning, like, am I supposed to be here? Like, you know, looking around, it's kind of like, oh, hmm, I wonder. So it's it's a very frustrating thing. And imposter syndrome is insidious. Like when you are the only one, you're wondering, am I qualified? Do they want me here for the right reasons? Do they think, should I be in these spaces? Is there somebody else that should have taken this role? And it just, for emotional health, for retention, for interpersonal dynamics, it can have severe implications. And I think that when we, tokenism isn't just being the only one, but when you leave it there, when you don't make efforts to continue, to continue diversifying and to continue building a workforce that's representative of the population served, then that's where the harm again continues to occur. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would just add, you know, from an imposter syndrome, because that's something I think a lot of folks uh, struggle with. And, you know, um, Natalia and I, we've talked about some of this before. And, you know, we have a, a, you know, a podcast that we actually brought somebody in um, to talk a little bit about that as well. But I think to give some tools or recommendations for when you do feel like that and you're in this space and then you're, you know, in this work, I think keeping a document of accomplishments is really important, right, that you can go back and look and say, oh, hold up, 
let me let me uh, disrupt my own thought process on if I belong here or not, because look at all these things that I've been able to achieve to get me to this point. Oftentimes, um, you know, if if it is relegated back to your your identity, your social identity, how you show up, you often say think like, ah, oh, you know, maybe that's the only reason I'm here. But I think you have to challenge your own thought process to say, no, I know it's not the only reason why I'm here. Um, I also have some friends who know how to hype me up, right? Some supportive friends who you can call up and say, hey, you know, I'm kind of feeling this way. And they're like, hold on. Nope. Because do you remember when you did A, B, C all the way to Z? And this is why you're sitting at that table um, able to make a difference. So as as people who do this work and practitioners in this space, I think it's important to keep that, you know, get your friends that hype you up and then also keep track of, of the things that you've been able to accomplish um, and even some of the things that you might not think are a big idea or a big deal, but, you know, some ideas that you've been able to push for that have changed the narrative in terms of the organization around you. I can't tell you how happy I get when other senior leadership folks around that table are now bringing up things that I've brought up. Right. I don't always have to be that person, but I see it reflected in the questions that they're asking. Oh, is that equitable? This decision we're about to make. And I'm like. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. And so you see it through the work that you're doing. Um, but I think it's important to, to keep that in mind and keep focused and um, challenge your own thoughts that go to that negative space as it relates to imposter syndrome, because it is pervasive. It is something that you're going to continuously, um, especially in the space question, but um, you know, it's, it's something that I think you can overcome as you do the work and continue to do the work. That's great insights from the both of you. Thank you so much. Um, I love. I just gotta say, I love the idea of contacting friends and letting them know how you're feeling. Because, like, one, you're not alone in in feeling like this, and two, just think about it from like the other side, like from from you know, through a mirror lens. If your friend came to you and they were like, "Hey, I'm feeling like this," you know that you would be like the first, like first row, hyping them up for whatever they were doing. So. Um, and, and you would be glad that they came to you and asked you for help in that sense. So, uh, ask people for help, you know, whenever you're feeling like that, because it's, it's a very universal feeling, unfortunately, but in a way, thankfully, so that we can all understand and help each other. Um, and, you know, with that being said, um, this feeling of, 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 um, uh, imposter syndrome and, and these, uh, barriers that we put ourselves because of the dominant culture, frankly, um, they can lead to burnout, right? So how do we how do we deal with those everyday struggles? Because as we have mentioned, DEI is not a race, it's a marathon. And even that is can be misleading because a marathon has an end goal and DEI is a constantly growing thing that, you know, there there is no end point. It's it's a journey, right? So um with it being like such a long thing, how do we deal with the burnout on the way there? You have to learn to celebrate those incremental wins, I would say. Again, that immediate gratification, if that's what you're in it for, you're not going to get that. This is something that, again, is embedded in our culture, in our society, in our world. And so to be able to celebrate those wins, to be able to, as Akua said, reflect on what you have been able to accomplish and consider where you came from and where you are now, that is essential. That is something that I often forget to do. And I just become so overwhelmed with what still needs to be done. And that's when that cycle of burnout starts to happen. But you need 
I think my coworkers, I am incredibly grateful for them because they remind me of remember where we were before you got here. Now think about what that meant to somebody, this new initiative that we have. And I think that another principle that I champion is joy is an act of resistance. And so being able to find the joy in life, being able to not detach from the work, because I think that there's a privilege in being able to somehow detach from something that is so pervasive in our day to day. Like when I leave work, I still see it everywhere. I see it at the gym. I see it driving down the street. I see it at the grocery store. But being able to find joy and diversify what you are focusing on and concentrating on is what I do to fight that burnout because it is real. I'd say I'm still learning how to do that, you know, to be honest, uh, doing it as a full-time job and then doing some consulting, consulting as well. You know, I find myself, you know, to Natalia's point, like in it all the time. And so you're right. It's definitely a privilege to be able to detach from the work and it's hard to detach from the work, especially when I do show up as who I am. Right. And so I, I agree with that joy, um, you know, nod, right? Like looking at opportunities to really find joy, but really being intentional and taking time off as well, right? I think that's something that we we often have a difficulty doing, but even if it is planning in advance, okay, I know next month I need to take these two days off to really just do nothing or to do something that brings you joy. Um, self-care is something that I, I really believe in as well and not we, we talk about like self-care is, oh, take a bubble bath or, you know, lay down and, and take a nap or whatever. But it's so much more than that. It's the discipline that I have in terms of my routine, making sure that I'm on top of things, exercising. Um, it, it's, it's a great healthy benefit, but also from a mental standpoint, it allows me to be really strong and have fortitude in the work that I'm doing. So I would say the more that you can take care of yourself and prioritize yourself, the better you can do this work. Um, because it is a long haul and it's not something that you're going to just check a few boxes off and, and be done. So I would challenge uh, the people in this work to definitely put yourself first as much as possible in the ways that you can. Um, and then take those deep breaths and breaks when you can and be intentional about scheduling time to not think about this, you know, as much as possible. I think that, you know, for the people that that are doing the work that are really passionate and that they know that they're good at it. Um, I completely understand that th things will be very different without you, but things are not going to change so much in a week without you that you cannot take a week off. <laughs> like it's, it's when, when we have, when we recognize that the AI is a, a marathon, it's a journey. Um, we recognize also that it's not going to like the efforts are not going to go away if we're not there all the time, every day, 24, seven, 365. So it's okay to take breaks. I definitely want to echo that. Um, Cause otherwise, if we think like, Oh, the, the weight of the AI is only on our shoulders and only I can save the world. No, no, no one can, no one can do that. Um, it's incredibly important to do self-care. And I love that you mentioned that self-care is not just a bubble bath and naps. Um, it can be that, but it can be so much more. Um, and also, uh, as, a, as a last echo, um, I want to mention that for small victories, I think that they don't have to be even organizational victories. Like, oh, we um, we we have uh, uh, gender neutral bathrooms in our office now. Like, I mean, 
great win, definitely. Like applaud that. But um, even small things like you know, I see I'm I do counseling um, on the side, and uh, one of my clients mentioned that he wanted to be more um, politically correct. Like that's the words that he used, and I was like, let's talk about that. So that's that's a huge thing. So I'm I'm excited to. Um, to work on that. And for me, that's a victory. So it, it doesn't have to be systematic or systemic victories. They can be individual victories as well. Like when someone that, you know, hasn't been the most um, acknowledging of other genders, they're like, hey, talk to me about pronouns. For me, I'm like, that's such a victory. <laughs> so um, small things like that. So I'm, I'm happy that celebration is part of this um, avoiding burnout. Um, Another thing that we have to avoid uh, with us talking about these big changes that we would like to make and these like big goals is um, the romanticization of, of the work, right? It's not glamorous. It's not the prettiest thing all the time. It has victories that are amazing and beautiful, but it's hard, gritty work. So how do we avoid the romanticization um, within ourselves, within our, the people that we work with, within, you know, people that are don't know anything about it and they're like, oh, my God, you're saving the world. So what are your thoughts on that? Change takes time. And if one has the mentality that we can do one initiative and suddenly everything will be okay, then we're misguided that this work, I think, is easy to, again, because it's become this buzzword of you have a statement, you have pronouns in your email signature, that is not enough. Like we are always going to have to do more and we have to bring so many voices to the table. And I do want, I want to go back and say that those things are incredibly important to be able to have those wins, but we can't just stop there, right? And so I think romanticizing DEI is just saying, well, we're all in this together, happy-go-lucky. We're it's, it's not all fun and games all the time. This work can be isolating. You're trying to change cultures. You're trying to bring a wide breadth of people together into the same space to identify commonalities in a very fragmented society a lot of the time. And so being able to be real with yourself, being able to be real with your organization and understand, I keep going back to this is a long-term process. This is not something that we are going to be able to have a three-year plan and suddenly everything will be okay, but we can set those benchmarks and we can celebrate those wins with the understanding that there is always going to be more to do, but that we have a sustainable presence to make that happen. And I think that that sustainability is key in avoiding that romanticization that suddenly everything will be okay three years from now. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I echo um, that sentiment because when you're doing the work, you find the more you, you find, the more there's more to find, right? Like, so there's always going to be something that you can challenge to um, make better in that space. But romanticizing it is is probably, I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's an opportunity to really do that if you're doing it in a way to challenge systems, right? Like, you, you sit there and you question things. You're always coming from that kind of skeptical mind frame where it's like, okay, are we doing this for the right reasons? Are people benefiting in the way that they need to? Okay, people are benefiting. That's awesome. Who's benefiting now? You know, 
who who what who do they who are these people in our organization and, and how do we make sure that other people benefit? So even in the victory, you're still questioning and, and picking things apart. And so it's hard to romanticize it um, when you're always coming from that mind frame of how do we make something better, right? And challenge it. But I think it, that goes hand in hand with celebrating some of those wins as they happen, but at the same time, knowing that there's always something else that you can center on or fix or, or look at. So um, when you're doing this work and you're, and you're really in the work, people aren't always going to like having that opinion around the table because it's like, well, dang, I, you know, I spent all this time to put this together. People are benefiting. Shouldn't we all be happy? And it's like, absolutely. Let's clap for that. But at the same time, how do we make this better? And how do we make sure that more people, um, are benefiting from it. So it's when you're doing it, it's difficult to get into that space only because there's always something that you could be doing better. Um, and so balancing those things, I think, is is a challenge, but but an opportunity to say, okay, the, the things that are going well are really well, but even in those things, how do we make it better for more people to feel um, like they're a part of it? I think another piece of the romanticization is thinking that one person can somehow do it all and that you can hire for one chief diversity officer, one chief equity officer, and that's all that you need. I see a lot of job descriptions being circulated a lot. Let me really emphasize that. A lot of job descriptions recently for DEI professionals, and I'll read what they say is the requirements. It's like, how could you possibly expect one human in a 35 to 40 hour work week to change an entire culture? Culture shifting is not something that happens by one person, essentially, especially, but in one year, in two years. And it's something that requires a team, yes, but also the entire community being invested in doing that. And I think that, again, pushing past that tokenism, pushing past the idea that this is the job of one person and they are, all of the qualifications in the world are not going to be able to do the work of shifting an entire organization. You need everyone on board, or at least a critical mass on board to propel this work. And I mean, like, I'll be the first one to say I will absolutely be that person to try to change the culture if I know that the culture is willing to change and, and is willing to to be out there, you know, because it has to be everybody. Like, one person cannot do this if nobody wants to do anything or if half of the people don't want to or a quarter of the people don't want to do the change. But if everyone is willing to like put in the effort and and do their best with being a part of this movement and being a part of this change, then one person can definitely be the 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 spearhead that like you know tries to guide people and gives direction. But to be solely responsible and everyone just does whatever they were doing before they were hired, no. <laughs> and I would say you know it's interesting now because in my role. HR now reports up through me, right? So we actually made that that intentional change at Evergreen where we said, okay, before we kind of were on our own islands doing our own thing, but our CEO said, you know what? I want everything we do through the lens of people to be looked at through this specific lens. And so now that I'm in this role and position where I'm working very closely with our, our head of HR, I now see things that I didn't see prior to me being, you know, in this specific space, right? Like, you see that the efforts that you're trying to push forward, why they're undermined in different ways. Because when people, when push comes to shove, people will revert back to the, the way that they've done things and the easiest way to do things because naturally that's that comes natural to, to them, right? And so being having this 
point of view now and perspective is really interesting to me because now I'm like, oh, okay. So this is why people will revert back to doing this. So how do we support them to carrying through these DEI efforts, right? Because naturally it might take a little bit longer to hire someone. It might take a little bit longer through, you know, to go through a process and make sure that you're sourcing from the right places. So I think the biggest thing that I've taken away from this shift is we need to support the people that we hope to sustain that change over time um, and getting a, a bird's eye view of why you might not carry these things out because you have different jobs that you have to do as well. So I think the juxtaposition of HR and DEI is something that I've I found really intriguing um, and interesting as we've made that shift. And now it, it better supports the work that I'm doing and, and carrying forward, um, you know, through that lens, because now I know what things to look for and can connect the dots for people and make it a little bit easier for them to carry through on the efforts that we hope to achieve. And I think that, you know, that speaks to what we had, what we talked about before of integrating DEI in everything that we do, not just as like, okay, DEI, it's in its own office and they just do their own little thing and, you know, whatever. Um, if we can incorporate it, and I, I love to hear that it's happening with like the actual employees, like it's not just a policy thing that, Oh, we're gonna like also include a statement of DEI in HR as well. Like it's you're at, you're being an active participant of HR policies and and what they're doing, um, and that's it's it's a it's a symbiotic relationship in that sense because it you're impacting their work, but they're also giving you perspective on how things operate. So I think that that's great, and I I hope to see that happening with more areas um, of of you know, in your case, Evergreen or um, TCNY, et cetera. Uh, obviously, hopefully not all through you because you're one person and that would be a lot. Um, but I, I, I'm happy to see that that, that change is happening. Um, so this has been a, an amazing discussion, I have to say. I, um, I think it's a great way to end the week. Uh, now on Friday. Um, but I want to open the space if there's anything that um, either of you would like to say or address, um, any uh, closing statements, comments um, for our listeners, viewers. I just want to thank you for having us here today. I think that even if it's not your official job title or something that is in your job description, playing a role in this work and being willing to even consider like, what can I contribute here in this space? That's what is needed. I think that with that imposter syndrome and with a lot of the things where it's hard to have conversations sometimes recently where it's you're worried you're going to say the wrong thing or that your voice is not valued in this space. But being in that space and showing up is how we get started here. That's how we build that critical mass, whether that be at the finance end, whether that be HR, whether that be in an academic-based program, just considering what is my equity why, for example, what relevance does this have to what I do? Because again, this is embedded in every aspect of our lives and just taking a step back and reflecting on who we are and what we contribute to the space is valued. And so thank you again. 
Yeah, I'd definitely like to thank you for having us. I think, um, you know, any point that we can have these conversations and, and put that information out there is really important for folks that are in the space or feel supported and heard, um, you know, that we're all in this together. And as a community, if we can you know, just ensure that that type of information is available for folks, hopefully they can take advantage of, of some of our own learnings and, and pass that down. Um, I'd also like to say that, you know, no matter where you are in an organization, you can really make an inclusive culture happen, right? Like in your own space, the things that you have um, power over are things that you can also challenge to make better. And then I will also say, you know, go question stuff, go, go ask people where you are, you know, in 2020, a lot of organizations made a lot of commitments and put statements out there and said that they were really going to push this work forward. Go ask questions to see where that's at. If you haven't heard anything, um, you know, and so I think everyone has an opportunity to have a part in this and organizations should really be open to allowing for that dialogue to happen within their organizations. And on the note of data, I'm here for the quotes today, apparently, but awareness leads to accountability. And so if you don't have the numbers, the metrics to be able to see where you are, how do you know where you're going? How do you know that those things that you've developed as initiatives or put on a strategic plan are really having an effect at all? And so that data is critical because it allows us to hold ourselves accountable. And accountability does not have to be punitive. Accountability is just being able to ground ourselves and know the role that we play to see where we want to go. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Um, I, I think that, you know, the takeaways from today have been uh, amazing, like question things, listen, uh, make sure that that the work is being incorporated throughout everything, not just in its own section. Um, Self-care, my gosh, like, please, self-care um, and make sure to ask why, you know, uh, I think that that's if if people ignored this whole conversation, I really hope they don't. But if if they remember something, I, I think that it's it's I think it should be the why of why we're doing this. Um, write it down, embroider it, frame it, put it on your wall um, and keep keep asking, keep asking why, because it can change because this work changes. So um, I want to thank you both again for coming today. This has been an amazing conversation. I hope that we can do this again very soon because I think that as quickly as DEI changes and as much as it changes, that's how often we should be having these conversations. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and see you, our guests, later. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast, and we will catch you next time.